Good morning and welcome to Dialogue and Debate. My name's Ed Newell. I'm the Chief Executive here at Cumberland Lodge. If this is uh, your first time joining us, Dialogue and Debate is our regular series of webinars where we respond to key themes emerging from the conferences we run at Cumberland Lodge and other pressing issues uh, arising in society. Last month, in honour of International Women's Day, we discussed what we can learn from women's experience of the pandemic um, with a focus on providing greater uh, inclusion, support for inclusion and equal opportunities in the future. If this topic's of interest to you, you can uh, still watch the, uh, the webinar on via our Read, Watch, Listen page on our website or on SoundCloud and other major podcasting platforms. Today, our topic is restoring public trust and we'll explore the so social cohesion implications of declining public trust in government, the media, and between communities, particularly um, in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. To do that, we're joined by three wonderful panelists, Will Jennings, Professor of Political Science and Public Policy at the University of Southampton, and the Principal Investigator of the ESRC-funded TrustGov project. Will Moy, Chief Executive of Full Fact, the UK's independent fact-checking charity, and Dr. Nikki Sue, social researcher at Ipsos Mori, an honorary research associate at the Cardiff School of Journalism, Media and Culture. Thank you all very much indeed uh, for joining us. Just to say that um, all who participate in this webinar are invited to submit questions to our panelists, and you can do so using the Q&A function if you're using Zoom or by commenting on our Facebook live stream. And we'll also be live tweeting and it'd be great to hear your views and receive questions from you. You can do that by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge and using the hashtag dialogue debate. Now we're gonna start as usual um, with a quick poll and having an expert here in polling, I'm very nervous about this, but uh, Nikki, I hope we do this properly. <laughs> and um, the question is, uh, going to pop up on your screen now. Has your trust in government changed throughout the pandemic? Generally risen, generally fallen, stayed the same, varied over time. So let's see what happens. Well, there we go. Clearly generally fallen amongst the participants. So uh, there we are. Well, we will get some comments on that, no doubt, from, uh, from our panellists as we, as we go on. Just to kick things off, um, I think it'd be important just for, to establish what we are discussing today. So what do we mean by public trust? And I'm just gonna invite all our panelists to, to comment on, on how they understand the, the term public trust. Anyone like to, to kick off? Well, I'll, I'll have a first jab at it. So, um, uh, I mean, in, in the kind of broad theoretical literature, you know, public trust, I mean, I think we could think about trust just in general being a formulation where person A trusts person B to do X. And I think when we're often talking in the public sphere, we're actually thinking about political trust or trust either in, in other people, so or social trust. Or, or, or political trust and trust in government to um, uh, do particular things for us. Um, uh, and I think one, you're kind of one of the questions about how we measure it, a lot of the work we do is looking at survey measures of how you ask people you know, how much they feel trust towards people, but also asking people qualitatively how trusting they feel towards others and towards institutions. 
Anyone else like to say anything, add anything about that? Um, yeah, I think um, I agree with Will. I think it's um, some of the things that I would probably just add to that um, is that between the relationship of the person you trust and the person you're putting the, who's putting the trust in um, is often based on certain criteria maybe you look for in um, the trust. So maybe because you think they're competent, reliable, um, or they maybe have had like a demonstrated history of integrity or like share our values, you know, some of these criteria might actually impact how we view them um, as trustworthy. Mm. Um, and also I think it's important to think of like the context in which what we're looking at. So maybe this might be a specific point of time that we think um, it's important, like certain criteria might be important for us. So I'd probably say that, yeah. Tricky thing to measure though, isn't it? Absolutely. And Will Moy, anything you'd like to bring in on, on this one? Well, a good example of that trickiness to measure and picking up Nikki's point about expectations. When you ask people, do you generally trust government? And when you ask people, do you generally trust government to tell the truth? You get two different answers uh -huh. from memory about 10 point difference in those two questions. So it's very interesting to wonder what participants in the poll we just had were thinking that they were trusting government to do in that context. But the other point I'd reference from our practical experience is that forming trust is one thing and retaining it as another. And, you know, let me give you an extreme example. Let's imagine that we were all on some awful corporate away day. And because we have very bad bosses, we've been required to fall back into the arms of our colleagues uh, to demonstrate our trust for one another. And we did this successfully 99 times in a row. And then on the hundredth time, you were dropped on the floor by your colleagues. Would you ever trust your colleagues uh, to let you fall, to, to let them catch you? Again, perhaps not. So we don't have to have our trust violated very much to damage our trust in a very major way. And I think that partly explains the attitudes we have to politicians. Thank you very much indeed. Well, that's really helped to, to set the scene. I'm going to go back to, to Will Jennings. Will, um, levels of public trust in government and the media were found to be decreasing uh, before the pandemic. Um, so what's happened since? Perhaps you can just help set the scene with that. Sure. Well, actually, there have been some really interesting um, dynamics around trust, um, both in the UK and globally uh, in government during the pandemic. And so, you know, during the initial lockdowns across the world in March 2020, we saw what was called a rally around the flag that people actually in times of, and it's kind of, it feels, it kind of is consistent with a very traditional view of political science, which is that during moments of crisis, national insecurity, people flock together. There's a kind of feelings of solidarity. They place their trust in leaders. And we saw um, approval of, um, leaders across the world rising, you know, no matter who they were, um, we saw trust in government rising. And there was some really interesting research by um, Sarah Hobble and Catherine DeVries and colleagues where they showed even that um, there'd almost been spillover effects between countries, between lockdowns and rising trust in government. So there was something very particular about that particular time. But then we've also seen as time's gone on um, a, some, something of a decline in trust in government. But we've, again, in the UK, we've seen a kind of what seems to be a kind of rise in trust with vaccine um, uh, rollout. So there's almost been a bit of a it's been a bit of a roller coaster actually in terms of trust. But but just to say a little bit about the focus groups we've been running on our TrustGov project, which we run in the UK, but we've also been running in other countries in Australia, America, um, Croatia, um, uh, uh, and Italy so far. We've got a few other countries in the works. And what's what's a really interesting theme that comes out from that is that people actually express, despite all the survey evidence we have of 
pretty low political trust. People ex express actually quite um, strong levels of latent trust in government to look after them. That, and I think this is very much a, a COVID effect, that people um, expect government to protect them and to care for them, despite, uh, uh, despite having loads of specific criticism. So, you know, when you kind of, they will, if you ask people in the, this kind of these settings of focus groups, well, do you think the government's out there to look after you? They'll say yes, and they'll talk about all the good things the government's done. But then they'll get into all this shopping list of things that they're moaning about and they're complaining. They've got very specific criticisms. And, and they, on one level, it seems very difficult to reconcile those two positions. They've got all these, I mean, it's quite funny, that poll showing that, you know, everyone thinks that, you know, their kind of trust in government has fallen during this. But on one level, people have those sort of very cynical attitudes. They've, they've got all these complaints. But at a deep fundamental level, people still almost have a kind of Hobbesian view that the government is there to protect them and, and care for them. And they still believe that. Well, there we are. This, uh, it's fascinating and uh, it shows how subtle this, this all is. And Nikki, when we've just been talking about government, but what about the news? Yeah. Um, how have people's attitudes changed regarding the news that's come out over COVID-19? So um, I think prior to the pandemic, if you look at um, global levels of trust, the UK was slightly below average in terms of trust in newspapers. So 46% um, of the public um, say they trust them, and the global average was about 47%. Um, but trust in broadcast media was a bit higher at 62% trusting television and radio. Um, and this is from our Ipsos um, research um, on public attitudes with media. Um, but what we can see is that overall perceptions tend to take longer to shift, even with something like um, a shock to the system like COVID was. So there's some evidence from um, IPA touch points that show that trust in um, different types of media pre and post COVID um, all stay fairly similar. So um, for example, trust in television pre COVID was at 49% um, and television post COVID also stayed at 49%. Um, and written press pre COVID was 35% um, in terms of levels of trust and then written press in terms of post COVID was 38%. Um, so you can see that you know, it stayed fairly similar um, in that sense. But what we do know is that the pandemic did bring about some changes in terms of media habits. So it might be something to, that, you know, um, that some of the trends might have already been in place, like more time watching um, video on demand or streaming services, for instance. Um, but we're definitely spending more time watching live TV. Um, and there's certainly um, an increase in terms of frequency of consumption, like um, post-lockdown BBC News consumption is at 62%, for instance, uh, whereas pre-lockdown was at about 55%. Um, so, and there's also some um, discussion in terms of like perhaps um, some types of media quality. So people might be more interested in uh, or more specific in the types of uh, news choices that they're making. So more have turned towards uh, major news broadcasters for some of their information about COVID-19. Thank you very much indeed. And moving on to, to, um, to Will Moy. Um, I mean, Will, from your perspective, what steps do you think need to be taken um, to, by, the, by the government in particular uh, to uh, restore trust um, in, in the wake of the pandemic? Um, and do you think the media uh, has got a role in, in, in this? I certainly do. And I think it's really interesting to hear the figures Nikki's talking about, about the change in media consumption habits over the last year. Full Fact's job essentially is to help people find information to make up their own minds about important topics. And we've been going for 10 years as a charity. Most of that time we've been fact checking 
an extremely febrile time in British politics, referendums, elections, um, you know, we've all lived through it, I don't need to rehearse it. Um, and then for the last year, we've been talking nonstop about health and the life-threatening misinformation about the pandemic. And the story of those 10 years in terms of where people get their information from is fragmentation. Whereas when I grew up, there were essentially five TV channels and 10 newspapers. And that basically was everything with a large audience, and particularly everything with a large audience that talked about politics. Now we have thousands of sources of information. Something can pop up literally overnight that is very hard to discern its credibility compared to something that's been there decades. And the fascinating experience we saw during the pandemic was a flight to trusted brands. People, when they're surrounded by confusing information, which is all of us all the time now, have essentially two options. You either sort of switch off, give up, and you have blind faith in the people you agree with or like the sound of, or you have a sort of blind cynicism, a curse on all your houses. And both of those are terrible for democracy. What's interesting is the, this choice people made during the pandemic to switch live TV back on again, whereas you know, live TV has been declining as a source of information for years and years and years, relatively speaking, still the biggest in the country, but in relative decline as other things grow. But to switch back to BBC One and the TV press conferences, trusted news brands for information. Where I think this takes us in terms of what government needs to do is firstly, they need to pull their socks off and stop misleading the public, stop manipulating the public when it comes to their media management tactics. We saw the disastrous release of a race report last week, for example, where rather than releasing the report in a responsible way where everyone could see it and discuss it, they released a selective summary the day before, tried to manipulate the media coverage and got into a huge row that was detrimental to what could have been an important uh, debate and public discussion and dialogue. So that kind of playing games needs to stop. But actually, I think the bigger question, because politicians will always be politicians, they'll always be trying to get their angle of advantage for their side, and so will the campaigners who try to influence them. The bigger question is, where does authoritative information come from in a world of fragmented information sources? Whereas the Office for National Statistics or the government or the NHS used to be able to talk to most of the country simply by going on the Today programme or the 10 o'clock news or getting on the front pages of the newspapers. That is no longer true. And if, as somebody once said, democracy is government by explanation, explanation is getting harder and harder to do because it's getting harder to get an explanation to reach a large proportion of the public. And conversely, it's getting easier for a subset of the public to have their own closed information sources that are hard to, harder to break into. So I think government needs to try harder to live up to that ambition of democracy being government by explanation. One of the things we've recommended is a parliamentary inquiry into the oversight of government communications. We do see them being politicized to serve the government of the day, the 100 million pound Brexit advertising campaign being an example of that. We actually need to preserve the independence and integrity of government communications as a service to all of the public. Um, and we need clear parliamentary and democratic oversight of how that works. And this is, of course, before we start talking about what needs to happen online and with social media. But I'll leave that for later in our hour. <laughs> Thank you. I wonder whether uh, Will Jennings or, or Nikki wants to, to come back on, on what Will said. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I chime in and say, I mean, I think I think there are two things just to follow up on what Will said. And we found from our focus groups we ran in the UK over the last year or so. Um, around COVID and trust. And one thing was actually that people really 
really valued the press briefings, the daily press briefings. They found those a kind of incredible source, mm-hmm. again, of authoritative um, news. And the other was actually a little bit, we did try to explore a little bit about disinformation and conspiracy theories. And, and when you actually get in focus groups, what you realize these kind of scary surveys saying X percentage of people believe conspiracy theories are not really telling the full story because actually most people are trying to engage with information in good faith but they're really struggling in a very complex information environment that Will was talking about. And so most of the, the kind of discussion of the conspiracy theories that are out there, or at least kind of theories that are unsubstantiated about COVID and various aspects of vaccines or whatever, are really just people trying to make sense of the world and trying to get a handle on and come up with actual reasoning. And so, you know, they're not conspiracy theorists in the sense that they've got, you know, beliefs about whatever's stored in the Arizona desert by the US government. What they're actually trying to do is just try and understand what is this, this threat, this public health threat, where has it come from? And what do we not know? They know there's uncertainty. And so a lot of the, I think the fear we have about communication is that we think that people have got this, you know, terrible kind of, you know, vaccine conspiracy theories about 5G or whatever. And really people just try to fill in gaps in, in, in the world that they're facing. And so that, that kind of feeling of information overload is, um, is, is huge. And I think actually compared to the US groups you ran, which are actually on one level terrifying because I think they tell you the, the how much worse it could be in, in a media environment that's as polarised, hyper-partisan, and, and just the extent to which people there were saying, well, I've, look at it. They were going through actually kind of, they were, you know, they were not doing fact-checking that Will might like, but they were kind of saying, well, I looked on, you know, three different sources and the, in their partisan bubble. And for them, they'd actually done the due diligence of checking OAN against Fox News against, you know, InfoWars. Mm-hmm. Well, not entirely, you know, <laughs> what you think. But they, they were kind of coming up with this thing. And so then you realise that actually the health of the information environment is so crucial for a kind of healthy public sphere around policy issues. Um, just on the back of what Will, uh, both Wills <laughs> were saying, um, you know, especially in thinking about the fragmentation um, of the media environment and just how quickly it's evolving all the time, I do think that there is some appetite in terms from from the public for the media to hold the government accountable. Um, and I've actually observed it in some of the work I've done. So in the Countering Disinformation Project I worked on last year with um, Professor Stephen Cushion and Maria Curicado. Um, at Cardiff, we carried out a six week long diary study to understand um, news consumption of members of the public during the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. So this was um, from March to May 2020. And um, participants were asked to report a little bit more about what they were reading, which news sites they were you know, trusted and getting their information from and um, what they distrusted, what they wanted to see. Um, and one particular entry, we actually asked about um, their trust in journalists and what they wanted to see in coronavirus reporting. And we found that participants wanted the news and media to be more assertive in holding politicians to account, you know, kind of asking the difficult questions, um, you know, what if they were not doing what they were promised, not, you know, what not delivering, then why wasn't this was the case? So um, if the results of our project really show anything, um, it's really that there is this appetite for like appraisal of the government and their policies and their actions, um, a type of critique, not necessarily a negative critique, but just to kind of hold them accountable. Um, so I, I definitely agree with what both Wills were saying about that. Thank you very much indeed. Um, just moving on um, and thinking of the, the pandemic as a metaphor, I mean, is trust or is indeed mistrust contagious? So. Does what happen um, if if you're if you're losing trust in institutions, in government, etc.? Does that then 
spin off into uh, into our individual lives? Does it make us uh, more suspicious of, of, of other people? Um, we're probably getting into the realms of psychology here, but I'd be very interested to know uh, whether this is something that, that any of you have got any views on. I suspect this is one I'll, I'll defer to my academic colleagues on. OECD did a fascinating um, project on how you measure trust. And what struck me as one of the interesting outcomes of that is that they think that the best measure of social trust is do you trust the average man or woman on the street? Hmm. Um, so there is a very clear read across from social trust in that sense to public institutions. But as there are two experts on this panel, I'll hand over <laughs> in their direction. There we go. Um, Will, would you like to go first? Yes, sorry. sorry <laughs> first. I mean, so, I mean, I, th I think, I think um, without, you know, kind of um, uh, going too, too much beyond what why I have the evidence, I think, I think there's a lot to say, to say that we know that political trust and social trust are, are related. And so <laughs> as our trust in institutions and the way that we make decisions and, and evaluate, um, uh, you know, institutions, uh, political actors tend to have, you tend to make a lot of use of heuristics. So, you know, in some senses, if, um, if one part of, you know, if one part of government does something that causes you to distrust them, there's good for good reason you might use that as a heuristic to transfer that across, just yeah. as, as if if you have a bad experience with one particular, uh, uh, you know, kind of person, you might apply that as a kind of ex project that to, to other people. And so I think there are, there are, there are broadly, you know, uh, good reasons to think that there is an element of that kind of contagion almost sounds it like it's some sort yeah. of kind of thing that spreads rapidly through the population. But, but I do think trust is a it's a, it's a relational concept um, yeah. and so therefore the, the the interaction we have between institutions between each other really yeah. does uh, matter and, and 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 the kind of the ways in which we use particular cues to, to, to guide us is really important so I think institutionally um, you know one, one thing that government does can have lots of downstream effects yeah um, and just on the back of that like I, again this is also not this is not necessarily the area of uh, research I kind of go into in terms of like political psychology or anything like that but um, you know, if we're talking about news and media, it's, and if you don't trust what you're reading or you're worried about what you're reading might be untrue, I mean, it is understandable why you might take that into your own personal life because you're concerned about it. And it could affect your mental health in that sense. But I think um, in terms of my own personal work, it's not really my area of um, research, but I do know that there are some psychologists who look into um, how media um, can impact, like uh, you know, someone's personal life and how they act in, in terms of um, you know, like socially and things like that. So um, I think there's certainly room for that. Um, I think in the US there's a, a psychologist called Priscilla Wright um, who looks at how news and if people read them if they're untrue or they're true um, can affect their attitudes towards like important policies like um, immigration. So there's certainly I think a relationship there like Will was saying. Thank you and just sort of following on from that I mean um, Will Moy earlier on talked about uh, news outlets uh tv and saying that when he grew up there's five you know five channels and now we've got this plethora well i'm old enough to remember uh when <laughs> bbc2 came online and there were two outlets and i mean people of my generation the world is very very different uh for, for, as a young person when i was young to, to what a young person is facing today where there's this saturation of information all sorts of uh, ways of getting uh, uh, of getting information I mean, is there a generational uh, difference about trust um 
And is there any evidence to say that uh, particular generations are more tr trusting than, than others? Well, I, I, I might, sorry. Go Give on, it a go, we'll, we'll Will. Jump, okay, I'll jump in. So, I mean, I think, I mean, I think it's actually quite important to be quite cautious about some of these claims that it's kind of all the young who are distrusting and older generations are high in trust. I mean, I think actually one of the things that we've seen with um, the Brexit has actually been around polarisation of trust is that um, traditionally, uh, um, uh, people with lower educational attainments, working people with working classes, tended to have lower trust. And uh, what the kind of the, the effect of Brexit polarisation on political trust and trust in MPs and Parliament has been to actually um, to sort of um, equalise social differences in trust. So basically, now Remainers and Leavers are equally distrusting of MPs. So you know, in some ways, it's an interesting example that Brexit hasn't delivered kind of trust bonus, but it sort of brought about a trust equalization. And and in the survey I th that Jerry Stoker and I um, did a few years back, we actually found the way you ask questions about how people feel about different sorts of negative sentiment towards um, politics and, and politicians and government um, uh, can actually have quite a big um, impact in ter on terms of the socio-demographics. So actually, young people can be quite optimistic about the things that government can do uh, whereas people who are um, older people who are kind of, you know, live through um, a greater number of governments and have lived through the kind of the, the, the eternal disappointments of governments not quite delivering what you thought they were going to deliver, are often quite cynical about that. So I think, you know, it's in very broad terms, we can say, oh, you know, I think it's easy to talk about, you know, particular different socio-demographic patterns of trust, but often it's the particular, it's the trust in what that kind of Nikki was starting about talking about at the start, that, that you know, trust in what is a really particular question where actually those demographics uh, those demographic differences were quite become quite kind of nuanced and complicated well it's tricky i mean particularly there can be misplaced trust and uh, and trust can be exploited terribly that uh, trust me because blah 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 i'm actually um, peddling something false so i think it's it's, it's a pretty complicated area isn't it very much so it, sorry after you nikki Oh, no, I said um, very much so, but um, I think just to kind of demonstrate again, that's not a very clear cut um, area to look at in terms of maybe just different age groups. I just took a look at Ipsos Mori's um, veracity poll, which we do every year and different to look at how people trust um, different professions. And we've been doing this since 1983. So just what we did last show, I, I looked at um, the percentage of trust in journalists um, for people who are younger, so 18 to 34. So there are 24% of people who say they trust journalists and compared to 20% of those who are 65 and above. So not a massive difference there. 19% um, of both groups say they trust government ministers um, and 12% um, for those in the younger group say they trust po politicians in general, whereas 16% of those in the 65 and above say they trust politicians generally. So again, I think just showing what we were saying, it's it's just not, it's not really very clear cut. And again, it's like the question of what exactly are we looking at in terms of trust? Like who are we looking at specifically and trusting what to, for them to, yeah. Sure. Before we uh, move on to questions that are coming in now from, um, from other participants, there's one other question that I'd like to ask um, about the responsibility of tech uh, companies uh, in, in, in terms of trust. Um, what, what role do you think tech companies should be playing uh, to build trust? Good, proper, proper trust, as it were. Well, building proper trust means also building distrust when distrust is earned. 
Yeah. Um, and it's very important that we don't set trust up as a goal. Yeah. Countries where 100% of people claim to trust their political leaders are probably not the kinds of countries we would choose to live in. Um, so what we actually need is the ability to help people be discerning about how we place trust and how we withhold trust. Mm -hmm. uh, similarly, Fulfax work is about helping people make that choice for themselves, not convincing everybody to trust what they are hearing. Um, picking up a generational point, actually one of the things we see online is that young people are often more adept at understanding what online sources are trustworthy or not versus older people who haven't grown up online in the same way and don't have the same familiarity with uh, some of the kind of online experiences and culture and that kind of thing. For all of us, there's a learning curve. And so one thing is an educational function um, making it easier for people to assess whether what they're seeing is trustworthy. There's some people think, well, you know, we need to teach critical thinking in schools. And I've always wondered what people think we're teaching in schools at the moment, if it's not critical thinking. But certainly thinking about the role of media literacy and formal education is important. But that takes 50 years to work its way through the whole population. So that can't be the answer. Some of the most encouraging work I've seen is about incorporating prompts to help people think about whether what they're seeing or about to share is trustworthy directly into internet companies' products themselves. Um, and I'll say full fact is currently used by both Google and Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, um, and YouTube, directly integrating our fact checks into their products. And I should say we get funding from both Facebook and Google in respect of that work. So Facebook, for example, if you go to share something that full fact was fact checked and found to be false, you might get a message saying this has been fact checked. You can still choose whether to share it or not. You can choose whether to read the fact check or not. But you get a prompt asking you to think about it. Twitter's done an interesting experiment when people choose to share a piece of content that they haven't read. Twitter says, do you want to read it before you share it? And bless them, they actually published the numbers on how much difference that made. From memory, I think it was about a 20, 20 to 30% decrease in sharing as a result of that prompt alone. You would have to check that figure, I stress. Um, but that shows that educational interventions at the point of decision about sharing are powerful and we shouldn't just think about education in the abstract sense. The other point I'd make is just picking up uh, Will Jennings's point about the 5G. Um, Full Fact warned about the rise of 5G misinformation online in 2019 as a pattern we were seeing of bad information online that's causing real harm. And it was restricted at that point to relatively small numbers of people. Um, we pointed out that there was no reliable public health information. There wasn't Public Health England publishing something saying this is safe and we know why the telecoms industry wasn't explaining what it was doing with the 5G rollout, despite the fact that we have decades of experience of concern about radio telecoms rollouts um, and public health. So 3G got the same reaction, 4G got the same reaction, and so on back in history. And we said, we need to fill that information gap with good information now, or we will have a growing problem. Lo and behold, a year later, that information gap had not been filled. And instead we had telecoms workers being harassed by people worried about 5G. And we had telecoms facilities being attacked by people worried about 5G. And then the government stepped in, and this is what they did, and it's really interesting. Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sports summoned the internet companies to his office, according to a press release. Um, <laughs> this, uh, 
in that meeting, which was actually pre-arranged, I was in that meeting, so I know that the meeting was pre-arranged for another purpose, but the press release said the internet companies were summoned to his office in order to uh, take them to task for not doing enough about 5G information online. Now, at the point that meeting was held, 50% of people said they'd seen 5G misinformation online in the previous week, according to Ofcom's polling. About 12, 20 weeks later, that number had reduced to something like 13% as a result of a massive intervention by the internet companies to take down 5G information from the internet as instructed by a government official. Now that's a remarkable thing in a democracy. You might see that as a success in tackling bad information online. You might also see it as a remarkable, unaccountable intervention by political figures into what we can all see and share online. So the ultimate question here is who is in control? Is it a democratic, open, transparent process or is it something else? At the moment, we are at the behest of the leaders of Californian internet companies and internet companies based not even in democratic societies and how they are influenced and lobbied by our political leaders. That's not the place I want to be. And the online safety bill, which is coming up, is an opportunity to put proper democratic accountability and put these decisions back into a democratic, transparent process. It's very, very important that we take that opportunity. And Will or Nikki, do you want to come in on that? Because it's a really important area. Um, just briefly, I think um, Will makes a you know, really good point. I think I, it's so interesting to find out a bit more about what he said um, in terms of um, that meeting was prearranged and then, you know, actually they, um, you know, they, they were using that as an opportunity to tell them to take, you know, to take action on, on that kind of misinformation. Um, just to kind of, to demonstrate how important this is, I think, is again to look at um, the research I did last year, um, where we also asked, uh, we actually asked the question about whether they saw, um, whether participants in the diary study actually saw the information about the 5G. And actually most of the 200 participants, I think I would say only like two out of three of the 200 participants um, were able to tell it wasn't true, um, which was good news for, for, for us, I guess, to hear. But um, one of the things that I think um, really struck out, stuck out was that when we asked them a little bit more about what they did and um, if they found something that was untrue, um, and did they take steps to verify? Did they um, did they use fact-checking services? Because that was one of the things we were interested in, um, was that we found that 55% of them have heard of fact-checking services, but out of those people, about 85 to 90% of them have never really used them. So whether it was BBC Reality Check, Channel 4 Fact Check, or um, the independent um, fact um, full fact. So, you know, I think there is, a, there is some, definitely something there to be done in terms of maybe raising awareness that this is some of the key resources that the members of the public could be using. Um, in, in terms of trying to raise awareness of what they're reading and what they're looking at, apart from also counting on you know, tech companies to actually take action on what was being published on their platforms. Thank you. Will Jennings, anything you want to, to add? I mean, I think I think I would just say, I mean, I think that uh, uh, Nikki and Will have said a huge amount of kind of uh, interest there. And I think I agree with all of it, really. I mean, I think I think the one thing that's worth saying about tech companies and AI and so forth, that this is almost at the kind of the, the end of a huge long term process of mediatization, the way that we live our lives. And so I think that was something that Will said at the start was actually really building trust is not just about one or two, you know, kind of um, fixes to our engagement with social media information, but we 
we wrote a, a book with um, colleagues, Nick Clark and Jonathan Moss and Jerry Stoker, called The Good Politician, which was about rising um, political cynicism and negativity using, going back to the 1940s, using mass observation archive um, mm. uh, diaries that people had written right up to, to, to present. And one of the themes that came through was actually that um, historically, because of the, the nature of the media environment, even before there were two TV channels or just people listen to people, to politics on radio and listen to politicians giving long, long speeches, uh, talks on the radio that would engage in kind of a very slow way, then I think it's just worth noting how much our information environment has changed. And so it's it's almost, you know, one level we're dealing with fact checks, which I think a very important part of this new process, but actually we are now just in a far more complicated media information environment that is far more challenging for citizens. On that level, you know, I think we get, you know, kind of in some sense, there's a little bit of a, we border on the, you know, kind of um, moral panics about the decline of trust when actually perhaps it's not always a bad thing that um, we citizens are distrusting. If you look at the global trends in trust, some of the countries that have highest levels of trust in institutions um, are very authoritarian regimes with very controlled media. And so that's maybe not what we're looking for. I think, you know, we're all aspiring in some ways to Nordic, you know, the Nordic high levels of trust rather than the liberal democracies like the kind of, you know, like America or the, or the UK where we've got, you know, kind of like quite, you know, a pretty good democratic freedoms but you know that allows us to be distrustful, and so I think it, it, that that broader sense of where AI, um, social media sits, is in part of a much bigger um, media information um, landscape that actually is incredibly tricky to navigate, both for policymakers, but also those of us who are interested in you know kind of um, pub, you know a kind of healthy um, public life. Good, bit of a dose of healthy scepticism. We're going to go on to um, questions from which are being submitted. And just a reminder, if you want to submit a question, please, please do so. And um, we have one here from Stephen uh, Cushion. Um, and Stephen asks, what do the panel think the launch of GB News, a new news channel in the UK, will do to public trust in news media in the future, particularly in relation to trust in TV news, which at present is generally high compared to other media? Anyone want to talk about GB News? I'll say that we know people make smart distinctions between different forms of news. Um, as, as Stephen, your questioner said, um, who I believe is Professor Cushion and another <laughs> guys, um, TV news is more trusted than newspapers. And actually, if you ask people about the difference between broadcast and tabloids, uh, people trust broadcast, uh, broadsheet more than tabloid newspapers. So people make fine distinctions. I think GB News have everything to prove. And until they've started broadcasting, we can't make any assumptions about um, the effect they will have. But what I would say is that this year has been a real lesson in the value of a trusted public service broadcaster. The BBC has challenges and needs to live up to its remit. But at its best, it is a shining city on a hill that provides a shared reality for people in this country. And when I talk to other people who uh, deal with harmful false information in other countries and many other fact checkers around the world are envious of us having strong public service broadcasting in this country and the shared reality that helps create. So I hope that Ofcom will be watching very carefully. I hope that everybody will recognize the value uh, the BBC and good public service broadcasting brings to this country in this complicated information world we live in and that GB News will strengthen that. Uh, it's up to them to prove that they can do that. Will Jennings, Dickie, anything you'd like to add? 
But I, you know, I should I should say I, I uh, technically work for Sky News during elections, so I, I can't I'm, I have to be tricked very carefully with what I say. But I mean, I think I think that I think the broader point, which is uh, which kind of Will's alluding to, is about you know the regulatory context. And mm. actually, I think it's it's too soon to make big assumptions about how what GB News might do to our our, our, our kind of wider uh, media landscape. But actually, in some sense, I think it's probably going to be really not as consequential as people think because the way in which we consume news has changed and the nature of our interaction with news. So I think, um, you know, on one level, I think we just, it's, it's a wait and see. Um, it's a bit of a yeah. sitting on the fence, but I, but I do think it's, um, you know, it's it's often very easy to jump to conclusions about how things are going to change the media landscape. We get new technologies or new platforms that we think are going to change everything. Whereas actually fundamentally, what we're all doing with news and information is the same thing now as we were 30 years ago, but just with more of it in a more complex, fragmented, um, some somewhat more egalitarian style, which is we just get more news sources. We're trying to grapple with more information, and you know, GB News will just be another player in a very, very large, wide, you know, globalized media landscape. Yeah, um, and I really agree with that. I think just um, on the back of that is just to kind of keep in view that um, until we know, you know, um, what it's like, um, it's hard to tell, but. You know, I think it's a good. It's good to maybe have more sources of information as a member of um, the public. Like reading, it's something they, they can turn to to verify other things if they feel like it's just another source of information for them. But I think it's hard to tell what it'd be like in terms of maybe disrupting the existing um, media environment, um, which is already incredibly complex. Like we've mentioned many times today. Thank you. Now we have a question here uh, from an anonymous uh, participant. Do people tend to trust positive news um, stroke sources more than negative news stroke sources or vice versa? Are we more trusting of what we want to believe? Well, that's a pretty deep question. Anyone like to go at that? I mean, I'll, I'll jump in. I think, I think we know that partisan motivated reasoning is a huge driver yeah. of the way that people interact with information, uh, news. Uh, I mean, you only just look in the US to see how um, people's perceptions of how the economy is going flip after every election. So the Republicans who, when Trump was in power, thought the economy was going great, now think it's going terribly, when actually there's been no objective shift at all. So, I mean, I think, of course, um, we we tend to like to consume news and information that that we agree with. Uh, and I think that is ultimately a driver, I think a challenge uh, for, for us all, which is and that, that for that media fragmentation allows us to self-select in to news and information that fits our particular worldview. And I actually think, you know, thinking about algorithmic governance, you know, algorithms are designed to steer us towards things we like. And I think that is, I think that is ultimately the danger of um, the new technologies, which are very much traffic driven, which is that they, we, you know, our, our human psychological um, needs and impulses are towards information that either actually makes us feel good or feel angry or a bit of both. Um, and therefore, um, there is an interest in platforms having clickbait and so forth that, that kind of, you know, stimulates us. And so I think that that is the, the, the real challenge about the new media environment that is, is I think, a paradigm shift from how um, traditional media has operated and the platforms that we're 
things are really driven by by traffic there there are there are there are there's a kind of there are particular um psychological um uh, biases which have you know may probably served us well uh even evolutionary terms but lead us towards a particular sort of confirmation that really may reinforce polarization um outgroup antagonism and so forth so i think we should uh, i think there's absolutely there's a lot there's a lot to that question and um i think it's something that we should really be very concerned about thank you Nikki or, or Will Moy, would like to add anything? Just a fun anecdote to add. When the, the wonderful the 2,000 people who donate to Full Fact every month and support us, um, and you can join them at fullfact.org slash donate, I should say. That's great um, when, right placement. There we are. <laughs> when we ask them, why do you support Full Facts? By and large, they always say, because other people need you. Um, and it's a fascinating quality that we all tend to think that other people could do with some fact checking. We're less likely to think about ourselves. But my favorite experiment in this space uh, showed people a table of numbers. And once it had an innocuous heading on it, and once it had the heading of gun control, this is in the US. And it turned out that once you shove a heading of a topic people have strong emotions about, they interpret the data uh, in a way that fits their feelings. And what was fascinating about it was people who had stronger numeracy skills were better able to mislead themselves into thinking that the data backed up their story because they knew all the tricks to interpret the data the way they wanted. So I just can't stress enough, we all have to be so careful um, about the fact that we can mislead ourselves before anyone else gets a chance. That's really interesting. Um, and just of what both Wills were saying, um, what came to mind actually, what I was thinking about was that because we're picking what we're reading more and more, we're also less likely to casually just come across other pieces of information like we used to if you were reading a whole newspaper or um, there's just less of that accidental um, incidence of other pieces of news. So it, it is definitely something to you know be concerned about in terms of maybe you're constantly just looking at information you want to look for or um, or within your you know, preference. So um, personally, I think I try to look across like different types of news, but you know, not everyone's doing the same thing. Now we have a question here from Andrew Lee and Andrew asked, what do the panel think of the role of accountability in relation to trust? Are we more inclined to trust an organization, government, people, when we know that breaches of trust are held accountable rather than simply brushed away? Well, I mean, I think I think I think the the, the question of accountability is, is sort of a root expectation around trust. So, when one of the focus groups we've been running um, in, in in several countries, we ask people actually what 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 makes a trustworthy politician as part of the of the, the focus groups, and 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 in every country, it's actually fascinating the the themes that come up. You'd think there'd be some slight you know cultural differences between different countries about what's expected, but fundamentally, people actually expect the same of the politicians. And one one phrase that just came up in different different countries was always do what they they're gonna what do what they say they're gonna do right and so um accountability is part of that process but i i think the problem of question you know is is actually how easy is it for voters to hold politicians and governments to account and it's not straightforward especially you know and i think you know again people who are democratic reformers might say oh you need a pr system so that we can kind of hold politicians accountable but actually voting is not always that you know governments are making a myriad of decisions every day a huge number of decisions over the course of, a, of the life of a government it's actually not straightforward for um, citizens to hold 
governments or, or organised interest groups to hold governments to account. And so I think, you know, accountability is an ideal, I think, that is kind of bound up with trust. But actually, the, the messy reality of um, democratic accountability is actually, it, it, it is not quite as clean uh, and it kind of is not the sort of thermostatic regulation that we might expect to keep um, on a government's um, on, on, on the straight and narrow. Thank you. Anyone else want to come in on that one? I've got a question. I'll follow it up then with a the question. How can we, how do we, how can, do we know we can trust the fact checkers? Well, let, let me, let me take them both. Um, the, the, uh, because I'm assuming that question was aimed in my direction. <laughs> Although if one of my fellow panelists wants to go ahead. Um, the short version is we're not asking you to, and we really don't want you to. The point of full fact is we publish all of the sources, we link to all of the sources we use. We're trying to be a shortcut for people to make up their own minds, not a source of uh, authority for people to defer to. Our world is better when people are questioning. Nobody has the time to do the kind of legwork we do on every individual claim we do. So it's about making it easier for us all as citizens, as people making choices about our own health, our own money, et cetera, to do that in an informed way and do that critically. So we are not asking you to take our word for things and that that's vitally important. And you know, there are lots of protections in the way Full Fact is designed around publishing all of our funding. If you go to our website, you can see everyone who's given us more than 5,000 pounds and exactly how much money they've given us. We have a cross-party board of trustees as a source of accountability. We have strict restrictions on political activity by our staff. We basically took all of the rules from the BBC and the civil service and Amnesty International and a bunch of other places and Put, did the superset of all of those rules in full fact because we knew we were going to be scrutinized and we wanted to be as defensible as possible. Mm -hmm. And actually that point about rules and accountability, I think really carries over to the previous question. But Nora O'Neill gave the brilliant BBC reflectors on trust in 2002 and they have stood the test of time in an extraordinary way. Mm -hmm. um, they could be given today. One of the points she made is that institutions that seek truth as a guiding purpose tend to have lots of rules around how they do it. If you think about the process of science or the process of accords, they have formal rules and formal obligations of the players to make sure that they are truth seeking in their design. Politics really, really does not. And in fact, in some places where you would think there would be rules, they are absent. So a member of parliament, if they make a mistake, has no mechanism for correcting the record unless they are a government minister. A government minister can put a correction on the formal record. No other MP can unless they stand up in a later debate unrelated and say, I made a mistake earlier and I just want to put that on the record, completely disconnected from the original statement. That's a remarkable omission in a body that presumably wants to be trusted. And by the way, the current prime minister, we have asked to correct the record and I think about 10 occasions and not had a response to any of those requests. So even where the mechanism exists, it is not actually working practically, even though previous prime ministers have corrected the record when we've asked them to. So we do need to recognize the absence of accountability mechanisms in large parts of British public life. And while you cannot create rules to keep politics honest and you know, the idea of doing so feels very dangerous, actually, we can have more rules and more expectations than we currently do. And we should, we should get those processes in place. And then we should recognize that this is fundamentally a question of behavior. Trust is ultimately a reflection of how you choose to behave. And some of the ways that people in public life choose to behave do not live up to the trust 
of the public and therefore they are not trusted. You reap what you sow. I mean, I might just throw in a little bit more on there. I think one of the challenges of um, the kind of coming up with accountability mechanisms in this context is actually citizens' low expectations of politicians to be truthful. So I thought um, Rory Stewart wrote a wonderful um, uh, review in the, I think it was the Titanic Supplement about an autobiography of um, uh, Boris Johnson, whereas actually one of the points he made, which I think was quite, you know, really insightful, was that essentially it's in some ways you know, Boris Johnson doesn't need to worry about the perception that he doesn't tell the truth or he's not honest, because actually citizens think that politicians lie and um, uh, um, um, uh, and, and tell mistruths. And so actually it's it's that real, I think, you know, creating a democratic ideal where truth telling is, you know, part of what we expect more of in politics. Again, I think there are lots of different political theory versions of politics, which actually say, well, a bit of, you know, lying is, is, is something that sometimes you have to do in politics and it's about finding the right mix. And so I think actually, you know, putting all these things together is actually really challenging because we we don't actually want a purely, and in some sense, I don't think any of us could, kind of could cope with a kind of purely honest politics. I think there needs to be a little bit of doses of mistruth, mistruth here and there. Um, uh, and, you know, and then at what point in the mix is just, it's just, you know, it's kind of the Goldil- the Goldilocks point of um, democratic politics is just right. I think that's really, really challenging. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I don't have anything to add, but I do have a question. I was wondering um, for Will uh, Moy, who was talking about these uh, mechanisms for accountability in different. Uh, do Do you happen to know when we're talking about like the UK, for instance, is there or, or Will as well? Um, do you know if there are any other um, bodies across the world who have um, some similar accountability in terms of, or mechanisms for accountability? that we might be able to draw inspiration from when we think about accountability and what that looks like? We don't actually have to look very far because the Scottish Parliament has a mechanism for any of its members to correct the record. Um, mm. The Scottish Parliament designed, obviously, with a kind of blank sheet of paper and uh, put a really strong emphasis on public engagement in the way they were designed. And that's a strength they have um, mm. that the Westminster Parliament does not have. That said, actually, I think that's a brilliant question. And I would love to know a lot more about that. I would love to know what is normal in different places. I do know that I've I've spoken to government and parliamentary delegations from all around the world because these questions are coming uh, all over the world and being taken advantage of in repressive societies and being worried about in open societies, as we all know. When I talk to parliamentary delegations about things like the House of Commons Library, we have an independent, respected research service available to all parliamentarians. The value that parliamentarians in countries that don't have something like that place on that is absolutely tremendous. So I think there are, you know, things in our system that are truth-seeking functions Mm -hmm. that are really valuable and need to be preserved and recognised. And there are areas where I hope someone else is doing it better and we could go and learn from them. Will Jennings, anything you wanted to come in on that one um no no I, I think i think i said what i said on accountability i think i think accountability is just a really is a really tricky um area but I, I do think there there must be ways to engage citizens at different points in the policy process in different mm-hmm. ways in different institutional ways and i think um you know i i think we should all be always thinking about democratic innovations um without having a proliferation again i think it's you know again the danger the danger of some democratic innovations is that you engage particular sorts of citizens who are of high social capital high educational capital and they're not actually the people that you need to mm-hmm. engage to build political yeah. trust 
I've been involved in various citizen assembly projects, which I think are wonderful ways to, um, you know, open up policy making processes, bring in deliberation. But again, those tend, if not carefully designed, to be more skewed towards particular demographics who are more engaged in, in politics. And so I think thinking creatively about institutional design is, is really important. And I think, you know, a feature of the British Westminster system, and um, kind of also the, the, the Westminster, is that we uh, are very opposed to um, much democratic um, reform or change at all, as we've seen with the radical steps that we've taken with Zoom parliaments and how parliamentarians wanting to get back to the safety zone of how, how Westminster has always worked. So I think um, culturally, I think um, finding a, a route towards democratic reform is quite challenging for us. Thank you. We're running out of time, but there is one last question that's come in from someone. So I want to just put that out there for a quick response um, from Makey Esler. And forgive me if I've mispronounced your, your name. Since the start of the pandemic, scientists have taken a more public role, joining politicians on stage to address everyone and forming groups that give recommendations. Does the panel think this was done well or could it have been done better? There we are. Quick fire responses. Yeah. You're going to have a go, Nikki? Um, yeah, I can have a quick go based on the research we did last year as well. Um, I think when we asked our diary participants quite briefly, like, tell it, you know, did you think that you wanted to hear, who did you want to hear from more in the news? Um, scientists, hands down, definitely, you know, were quite in front of the pack because they felt like they were telling the objective truth. And again, that was what... I think a lot of the findings that came out of the diary study showed um, is that that's the kind of information that um, members of the public wanted to have when it came to the coronavirus. And I think um, in terms of the role of scientists uh, and how important it is, um, Ipsos has also done a study with UKRI to look further into this. And um, we certainly found that most people trust scientists, including scientists specifically advising the UK in terms of response to the COVID-19. So 55% of them considered um, COVID-19 scientists to be trustworthy um, and three in five in general considered scientists to be general and trustworthy. So, but again, um, pre-existing attitudes, like if you didn't believe in science um, or you were less affluent or less educated, then you're still unlikely to believe in science anyway. So again, it doesn't necessarily move up and down in response to good or bad news, but pre-existing it does you know it's relying on pre-existing attitudes i believe thank you i mean just 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 follow on the focus groups we we ran i mean certainly people trusted the the scientists and, and felt good about the scientists being part of the communication strategy i think you know the lesson from the pandemic really is in some ways the the kind of some some of the classic lessons about science communication and public health communication which are that um you know science actually is quite challenging for people because it comes with uncertainty and so actually i think the scientists you know the the are being kind of um, getting involved in communicating you know governments and so forth uh, a very good job with that but i think the broader sphere around that i think there's there are you know there are people find it challenging when scientists disagree or there's uncertainty and so one would hope that some of the lessons that we take forward about um science 
education are, are not particularly new, but actually kind of revisited because I think we've known from various different, um, you know, kind of public health scares or so forth in the past for certain things that possibly could have done better. I think, you know, I think, you know, although I think everyone agrees that the press conferences have worked well broadly, the government's communication um, of scientific communication has been good. I think some of the, the, the policy messaging has been a little bit um, off and confused at times, um, but actually kind of a broader understanding of what the challenges of confu- can, um, uh, communicating science are in this sort of environment, I think would probably be helpful because I think it probably has not um, always gone as well as it could have done, but I don't think that's necessarily down to the scientists. It's actually that, you know, I think this the, the phrase following the science actually is deeply mis- misleading because I think people uh, and people the people trust science as they feel it's uncontested and it's a kind of prop when actually science is contested. And so I think the problem is not necessarily with the scientists, but about how a broader set of actors are those of us in civil society engage with scientific information and communication. Will Moy, give you the last word. Well, I I strongly agree. I think a lot of scientists deserve a lot of credit for doing brilliant communication work and explaining some very complicated topics. And we're very grateful to the many we've relied on in our work at Full Fact. Um, The national communicators, the witties and valances um, can be proud over all of what they've done. And also lots and lots of people at grassroots level explaining their areas of expertise, doctors, nurses, research scientists, and so on. That is complicated, I think, by two things. One is the policy communication. Uh, Professor Will is quite right to say that sometimes that has obscured uh, the message. The other is science is at its best when you explain the uncertainty and help people make up their own minds rather than just tell people to take your word for things. And most of the time, I think that's been done well, but there have been gaps. The problem with the uncertainty is it can be exploited. And this is the thing we've seen on the front line is people with some medical credentials or some scientific credentials, but not um, a weight of opinion behind them or weight of knowledgeable opinion behind them, kicking up dust and causing real concern by giving bad health information. We've seen chiropractors (laughs) who are in some sense health experts uh, giving advice about vaccine safety and dangerous advice at that. We've seen fringe um, scientific views being presented as a um, as a mainstream idea, and what we know is that false information does not have to convince people in order to be uh, effective at changing people's lives. It can simply cause enough confusion to um, stop people acting. In this country, we're lucky that we have vaccines rolling out and a huge take up of them. In other countries, that confusion and doubt has been a real source of concern. So we do need to think about how we deal with the fact that anyone can get a platform these days and reach a large audience, even if they have spurious or no qualifications in a particular topic and how we respond to that. It's gonna be a growing problem in the future. And if I could just end with a couple of plugs, um, Ipsos's work on generations, Ipsos Mori generations and Ipsos's report, uh, The Truth About Trust are two absolutely outstanding contributions in this field. And Will Jennings and colleagues book for Good Politician will change your view of what it's like to be a politician these days. So I'm very, very grateful to have been on this panel and I really recommend you follow up on their areas of expertise. That's brilliant. More product placement. BBC wouldn't allow that, but there we are. (laughs) So thank you all very much indeed. Uh, Thanks everyone for, for joining us. If you'd like to get alerts about forthcoming webinars, you can sign up on the Keep in Touch page of our website or simply email us at inquiries at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. And uh, just a reminder that our, our dialogue and debate webinars normally take place at 11am on the first 
Wednesday of each month. Uh, next month, the topic is fostering climate resilience, and we'll be exploring climate adaptation in the UK. And it's part of a bigger project we're doing on climate change. And um, so if you want to find out more about that, do have a, a look on our website. And just before uh, we say goodbye, I'd just like to highlight that like all charities, Cumberland Lodge is facing difficult times during the pandemic. If you've enjoyed today's event and would like to support our work, we'd be very grateful if you consider making a small donation and you can do so online via our Just Giving page. And we'll put the link up immediately after the webinar. Thank you everyone for joining us and especially to our wonderful panelists, to Will, Will and Nikki. Thank you very much and goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.